This is a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. It's one minute past nine. You are tuned to 102.73 Triple R. It's time for this week's edition of Radio Marinara. My name is Bron Burton. My name is John Ford. Um, Rex Hunter. How are you guys? Yeah, doing really well. Very good, very good. Welcome to a uh, very interesting Sunday. <laughs> yes, I'm thriving on uncertainty. Yeah. Yes, um, I'm looking forward to going back to the 1950s. <laughs> None of us are looking forward to um, that, Rex. <laughs> None of us. Poor old que- parts of Queensland are going to be heading straight back to the 1950s. The, the cars were nice. <laughs> there's got to be a there's got to be a Back Cuba. to the Future meme in this with with Pauline Hanson getting out of the DeLorean back to 1955. I don't know. Anyway. Anyway, that's enough about that. Interesting times. So if you, I'm sure you know what we're talking about. If you've woken up, we we don't know where we're at politically in terms of who's running the country. Uh, Eleven seats, I believe, according to um, our our political expert Kent. (laughs) (laughs) It's it's still still well in doubt. Kent's panelling for us Mm. today, and uh, yes, and he actually is. Well, anyway, we'll, we'll, we'll. yeah, leave that. And considering most of the parties had, you know, very little policy around marine and coastal issues, then we're going to talk a bit about that um, <laughs> leading into the show. And um, thank you, Tim, very much. Before we go any further, mm-hmm. yes, thank you very Always much. Good. Thank you very much. Always Tim. good on the weekends. We love, we do love our Tim. Uh, okay, so we're going to kick off with a bit of news, a bit of post-election news, a bit of other news, all kinds of stuff. John, you've brought in. Yeah, certainly international, local. You can rely on me. Excellent. <laughs> Good, because I am. <laughs> then um, about 25 past nine, we're going to do a uh, review of Finding Dory, which is the latest offering from uh, Disney Pixar. And uh, rather than doing the uh, review ourselves, I thought we might um, leave it to some members of our tar- of the target audience of the film, <laughs> being kids. And so we've got um, Madeline, Amy and Jemima who are coming in, and I confess up front to being related to all three of them. <laughs> so one of them is my daughter and the other two are my nieces. But uh, they're all revved up. They're ready to go. They've all seen Finding Dory. I think combination of 2D and 3D. And uh, they're going to do a review of it. Great. Mm. No payola involved? 
paella. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I you said paella at first. I'm not going to eat it. Eating, eating seafood whilst eating Finding Dory, probably not. Oh, maybe some hot chocolates yeah. afterwards. No, no, they're super revved up and ready to come in. I've actually not seen it yet. So, um, yeah. So. I'm waiting for the book myself. <laughs> <laughs> you might be waiting a while. Uh, then we're going to be crossing to Phillip Island to speak with Jodie Bellett, and she is a wildlife rehabilitation officer down at Phillip Island. She's one of the wonderful crew of people down there who look after sick and injured wildlife who come in and need uh, veterinary attention uh, before ideally, and this is the this is the successful end of the process, they're released back into the wild. And I, I'm guessing in some cases not. So we're going to have a chat to Jody about what that work involves and also whatever happened to those uh remember quite a few years ago we talked about those little knitted vests that people could <laughs> contribute to to helping with the rehabilitation of oily penguins mm-hmm. i actually know the answer to this question <laughs> not what we all anticipated so um we're going to touch on that a little bit with jody and then rex this right. is this is very <laughs> i actually heard an interview with somebody about this not that long ago but we're going to talk about a very interesting bottle of beer that was recovered in a shipwreck yes yes um Brewing 220-year-old beer in Australia. It's a, it's a world first. World first. <laughs> a world first. <laughs> world, world first. I was going to say, it's a bit of both, isn't it, really? Yeah, yeah. So, no, very interesting story. Uh, you'll find out all about it later. Excellent. Don't give too much away. No, we don't want to do that now. <laughs> Forecast for today. Uh, heading for a top of 16, partly cloudy. 16, that's quite warm. Partly cloudy, uh, 30, 30% chance of a shower. Winds northwesterly, uh, turning northerly around 30 kilometres an hour. Um, so it's going to be reasonably windy today. A bit warmer than last week with the Community Cup, but we'll talk about that in a minute. 14 degrees, showers increasing tomorrow. Um, high chance of showers and not so blowy, but um, yeah, a bit wet. And then uh, Tuesday, rain at times at, and 12. So back down to those Community Cup temperatures. It was very cold last week down at Elstonwick Park. Wednesday, 12, shower or two. Uh, Thursday, partly cloudy, 13. Friday, partly cloudy, 13. Saturday, around 14. So a um, bit of a, as you, as you rightly predicted before I even opened the paper, <laughs> before we went to air, John. Somewhere between 12 and 15 degrees. <laughs> raining a couple of days and wind from the north. <laughs> yeah. So spot on. Uh, on the water today, um, we are, if you're looking to do something tidal, down at the heads, we are heading for a high tide at 10.30 this morning and then a low tide at 3.30 this afternoon. And surfing forecast on the water brought to us all by Swellnet, easing swells, fresh western or westerly winds continuing to favour the surf coast for the best waves. Water temperature is 14 degrees. Quite warm. It is. It is. We had Terry in last week and we were talking about that and it's got to that point where the water temperature in Port Phillip Bay, and I'm assuming Western Port as well, we should look into this, and uh, and Bass Strait is the same. So it, it tends to fluctuate and uh, at some times of the year the bay is warmer than Bass Strait and at other times of the year it reverses. Yeah. Winter but, is generally cold. Yeah, but at the moment it's the same. Yeah. And um, and warmer, uh, actually today it'll be cooler, but last week it was warmer in the water than out of the water, so mm. it's really interesting times. I think we've got time for maybe a news item or two, John. Yeah, look, I, I must start with some positive news, I think. Yeah, well, why not? Positive little tidbits of the marine world, well, at least around Australia. Look, I'm going to pick on two things. Um, two really good things that are happening um, around southern Australia. First is about um, a fishery, and this is in Peel Harvey Estuary, south of Perth. And this is a world first where a joint commercial and recreational fishery, so this is commercials and recreationals working together side by side in a sustainable and sustainable way, 
um, obviously that sort of something which um, hasn't really happened here in, in, in Victoria. But they have got the Marine Stewardship Council, um, which is the, basically the, the highest level of sustainability accreditation when it comes to seafood and fisheries, um, big international brand, talked about it a lot. They have got the um, accreditation and the tick of approval for a joint commercial and recreational. So this is the first time it's happened anywhere in the world. So it's saying that, look, these two industries can work side by side sustainably mm. and, you know, we can ensure that the, that resource and, and the blue, in this case, it's the blue swimmer crab fishery, um, can, you know, if can go ahead with both of them there um, into the future and that's really good news. And that's always been my vision, say, for Port Phillip Bay, uh, but, you know, that's um, obviously has, has um, not come to pass. Um, but, yeah, it's good news that, you know, they can get that accreditation, um, they can be recognised as sustainable by an independent third party and, um, yeah... They can work side by side, so it's good. It is good. Yeah. yeah. Might be a model. Will be a good model, exactly. A model from, to work with. Um, look, and the other thing I just wanted to poke on, which is um, a poke on. Um, <laughs> it is a little bit like I can poke the oysters. Anyway, it's about oyster reef restoration, which is something which um, uh, basically the Australian First was here in Port Phillip Bay, um, yep. trying to restore our native Angazi flat oysters. Um, and this expanded um, all the way across southern Australia and uh, it was in Albany. They did their first sort of um, oyster reef restoration um, there about a month ago or a couple of months ago. And now they've gone into South Australia in the York Peninsula. They're going to put out these are natural reefs so mm-hmm. we talk about artificial reefs so just sort of you know it's kind of like throwing in rubbish to some extent but this is actually throwing in limestone and shell and actually live oysters so it's actually creating living reef as opposed to um sort of an, an artificial reef in that sort of sense and and that's really good so um yeah i hope that the port phillip bay one can expand up into something big because now the port phillip bay one is looking a little small compared to some of these other states um but i'm sure it'll expand so Positive things, yes. Um, in the in the in, in around Australia, is this with a purpose Australia. for a fishery, or is this purely for conservation, or is it potentially both? Do you think? Well, I guess the great thing about these sort of reefs is that it, it provides um, it provides both. So the idea is you are providing fish habitat or fishery habitat, but you're not providing. You know, directly fish. I mean, it is, it's an ecosystem that you're creating there or, you know, the productivity within that natural ecosystem. And so you're actually getting both the, the diversity, um, you're getting the, yeah, you're getting the productivity, which then goes into the fish as well. So I guess it's sort of something that ticks all boxes. Mm. Mm. Excellent. Thanks, John. No worries. We're going to uh, listen to some music and then continue our news discussion, including what we know in terms of... Um, actually, on the show last week, we mentioned a scorecard that was being put out by a number of different conservation groups relating to the Great Barrier Reef and various positions held by um, three major political parties. So we're going to go through those because uh, we didn't, we weren't actually able to do it last week. The scorecard <laughs> okay. only came out on Wednesday. Uh, nothing to do with the Community Cup. We were all very hyped up about that. But the scorecard only came out on Wednesday. So given that we are in this state of uncertainty, it's mm. probably good uh, um, time to actually look at this scorecard and what it actually means. Yep, definitely. Yeah, definitely. And uh, oh, I mentioned Community Cup. Look, we know the result. I'm still recovering from my game day injury. Can you see me all taped up? Oh, wow. Yeah. Bron really is taped, yes. And I yeah. didn't she play. She looks like the mummy. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I, tore a, I tore a tendon in my shoulder lifting up the drinks trolley. Oh, uh, no. So I figured that I'm actually safer on field, so next year I might play. Right, we'll okay. See. Was a trolley, it was a trolley stuck in the mud, was it? You had to pull it out. It was that. Or did you have to it was pull it over some bodies? Some, no. Some, some bodies on the ground, you had to kind of push the trolley yeah, over them. No, it was, it? it was one of those really sad injuries that okay. kind of just 
yeah. indicates that you're not kind of, you know, 18 anymore. And there was no one else there to see you. No, everyone was running around. It was all pre-game yeah, yeah. and we are all in a bit of a panic it's trying to get out there. world injury. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we went in a panic, I was. John? Yeah, well, look, we were going to have a bit of a post-election wrap-up on what the, um, the, uh, the elected government might mean for the marine environment, but we can't really give that. We might have to give that in about two or three weeks, mm. it sounds like, the sound of it. But what we can talk about now is about the reef, Great Bay Reef, because there hasn't been a lot of marine policy thrown around in this election campaign by by any means. And I guess the only one that's really stood out has been the Great Barrier Reef and the policies that the um, various parties might have on them. And so I think during the week, um, out came Wednesday. Um, is it from the Australian Marine Conservation Society? Was, was it a scorecard? Yeah, there were a group of... Um, it's called Fight for the Reef. Yep. So it was a group of conservation groups that banded together and put out a, a collective... Uh, summary of mm. how they saw the various political parties and their election platform promises. Yep. Yeah. Shall I go through it? Yeah, go through I'm it. I'm reading from a, a black and white copy in tiny font. <laughs> <laughs> so um, it was a standard traffic light type document. So you know, green, orange, red. So red being, no, this is a really bad idea. Orange, eh, it's got some merit, but not ideally where we want it to be. And green, big thumbs up. Okay. So the first one is uh, laws to stop farm pollution flowing into reef waters. So uh, the Liberal National Coalition got the big red light for that one. Uh, and uh, ALP and Greens um, both got a green light. Okay, so it means they are going, yes, is their policy to bring that, those in? Yep. Yeah, great. Uh, second one was a multi billion dollar fund for better farm management and catchment repair to stop reef pollution. So a big, uh, another big red and a question mark for um, the coalition. Um, ALP got a, a, an orange and the Greens got a green. Okay. Yeah. Uh, is, is there is there a trend forming here? <laughs> well, the trend will be you'll see green for the greens all yep. the way through. Yeah. So there's almost no point <laughs> me mentioning them because I just assume that each one of these they've got a green a green light. Right. Um, a strong champion for the reef. So in terms of advocacy and yep. actually wanting to get out there and, and do something positive. Yep. Uh, yes, another red light for the coalition <laughs> um, and uh, an, uh, a green for both the ALP and the greens. Uh, stop damaging industrial developments on the reef coast like. Abbott Point. So red for the coalition, uh, as you would expect, uh, an orange for the ALP, and I guess there's some uncertainty around that, and green for the Greens. Uh, stop illegal fishing and protect turtles and dugongs. And according to this, uh, all of them got a green light for that one. Oh, good. So that's a good oh, thing. Good to see the Liberal National Party getting a green on something. That's right, but that's the only thing. Uh, and <laughs> deliver a rapid shift to renewable energy and end fossil fuel subsidies. Mm. So uh, red for the coalition, uh, an orange for the ALP, and a green for the Greens. Yeah. So, I mean, this all, all comes back to um, political parties generally do what um, what they have done in the past. And in that case, um, the Greens support the environment. The um, Labor, it's sort of somewhere up there. And uh, Liberal, the environment comes down somewhere near the bottom. So that's just the general trend of things. Yes, and I think... <laughs> and it kind of plays out in the Great Bay Reef as well, so... That's right, and putting this into context, of course, that this is purely about the reef, and it's purely about the uh, approach to managing the mm -hmm. reef, um, both in the short term and then into the medium yep. and longer term. Mm. So, uh, and I want to make that point up front, this is not a, a coalition um, bashing exercise. Yeah, I'm, that's I'm, just, but I mean, it's, it's pretty clear what... Yeah. That's right. We're, yeah. Reading, we're reading from a scorecard that was published um, on the ABC News site as well. Right, okay. So just just to make that really clear, but and and this really needs to be put in context. But you know, once once the approval for Carmichael was given, that really yeah 
sets things up. Yeah, yeah, no, so certainly. And look, I mean, I think that's certainly with the that uncertain election result right now. I mean, it looks like the most likely result is that the Liberal National Party will um, either just get a slim majority, or that they will um, have to work with crossbenchers. And if it's likely that they do have to work with crossbenchers in the lower house, one of those will be Bob Catter. And so that will make it quite interesting as to where... I don't know what his policy is on the Great Barrier Reef, but he's certainly very focused on agriculture and farms. So we'll have to see how that may play out in what happens with the Great Barrier Reef and what the, what the Liberal National Party has proposed, because that may change um, if they need to um, to work with him. So that's a sort of pretty interesting one. Look, during the week, um, we've also had, I think last, last week or last weekend, there was the International Coral Reef um, Symposium in Hawaii, and um, 2,000 scientists from there sent a letter to the Australian government saying, hey, you guys really need to act. So... Um, it's also the pressure there coming from from international scientists um, working in the coral reef, oh, that's pretty coral cool. reef world. Uh, do you and think that's is that likely to resonate? Do you think? Oh, I think. Uh, will, will it lead to? Yes or no, John? It'll resonate. It'll, it'll, it'll support those who are um, already saying for action. And I, I don't think it. I mean, I mean, how much science drives policy right now? I mean, yeah. We've seen it happen before, though, haven't we? When we see international groups of peers and particularly well-respected peers getting together on, on a scale like this, it can be quite effective. Look, I had to be negative, but I think that the, the general lack of respect that the, that the, that the government has given uh, the, the UN sort of heritage and so on, I think that, that um, they're kind of beyond that. Mm. But anyway, that's just my opinion on things. Um, but look, there's a few other things happening in Great Bay Reef. Um, Generally, the Queensland government itself is obviously going to play a big role in this, and they actually plan to do more dredging in Cairns to allow more mega cruise ships to come in. Um, but at the same time, they've purchased uh, one of the, the largest cattle farms there to reduce reduce runoff. So it's kind of these sort of things that cancel each other out. So mm-hmm. stuff's being done, but you also got to remember that further development is occurring on the reef, um, and you know it, it's hard it's hard to say to say no to a lot of that. I'm sure from if you're if you're a state government. So anyway, that's the Great Bay Reef. We'll see how that happens and what, what happens there. And, and certainly climate change is the biggest uh, threat to the reef in the, in the medium to, to long, particularly long term. Um, but we've also had some climate change uh, effects, I guess, um, in our marine environment down here in Victoria. Yes, I saw this one. Thanks to Mark Rodrigue. He can be our Bellarine correspondent. <laughs> <laughs> he sent this one through to me, and, but I, and I know you found out about it independently as well. So this is a, this is a story that was published, uh, the headline being Counting the Cost of Climate Change Off Gippsland's Coast. Mm. Uh, Tell what's what's happening here. Well, so uh, what we know, well, one of the big effects, biggest effects we're going to see in Victoria, in particular eastern Victoria, is that in a warming climate, we're going to strengthen the East Australia current, and so that means the warm water coming from up the north will basically penetrate further down the coast and will come down into um, eastern Victoria and even to, even to Tasmania. And um, what that brings with it is a host of new species and new environmental conditions. Uh, one of those species is the long-spined um, urchin, mm. Centra stephanus rogers eye, and it basically it can change uh, the rocky reef systems quite drastically if it's there in overabundance and unfortunately along the east coast we've seen that happen and basically turn kelp forests into um, basically just barrens, so mm. bare, bare rocky barrens. And the way that it does that it crawls across the substratum or the rock and any new algae which are trying to get established to create those big 
uh, sort of underwater forests, uh, they're cleaned off before they even get a chance to establish themselves. Yeah, that's sort of how it. Uh, how it it's an ongoing sort of um, disturbance there, but um, it also just eats the kelp as well, yes. like to begin with, and you these big fronts of them and so on. Um, anyway, so there was quite, there was a, a, a an interview with um, the Friends of Beware Reef President Don Love, and so Beware Reef is um, out in eastern Victoria, and um, it basically it's, it is a marine park. And basically what he's saying is that, look, after it's a marine park, you'd expect things to get better, particularly when it comes to crayfish. But what they've actually found, what he's he's observed, is that um, it's actually become worse. And it's nothing to do with a big marine park. It's to do with the increases in these urchin numbers, the drop in the kelp. And so, and then obviously uh, and then associated with that, because the habitat changes, a loss in the, in the crayfish as well. So we're seeing some big effects that go well beyond what wonderful groups like that can can sort of you know they're, they're really trying to to um to preserve that reef and conserve that reef um but there's changes are happening well beyond what we can done do at the individual or group level just goes to show the importance of both research and also marine conservation doesn't it john absolutely mm. can i do one more bron absolutely right i want to talk about seafood labeling which is something that again i've been talking about now for quite a number of months and um i did write a con- conversation article if anyone wants to go to the conversation and have a have a read it's of a that very good look article. up my look up my it's about flake and it's about seafood labeling and i've been very strong on um i guess advocating for better labeling of our of our cooked and our raw or seafood. Now, um, basically, what, what's happened at the federal level is that the, neither ma- major party wants to support that um, because there's a lot of pressure from the restaurant industry in particular and also seafood importers who don't want their products to be labelled as imported. Now, New South Wales has committed now to country of label origin, or country of origin labelling mm-hmm. um, of in restaurants and cafes and fish and chip shops and all that sort of stuff. So you will see whether something is Australian or you'll see whether something is imported. That's great. And that is really awesome. So they're drafting what that's going to look like right now, but that they're done. So they're following Northern Territory. Northern Territory have had it for years and, you know, you know the, the restaurant industry hasn't collapsed there, you know, clearly. Um, but uh, basically what this does is put a lot of pressure on Victoria in particular Mm. because what New South Wales are saying is that we have great local fisheries, they're sustainable, they should be differentiated, people should know they want to buy it, right? That's what Victoria has kind of been saying for a while but if it really wants to follow through with that, Victoria needs to create these similar laws so people can know where the seafood they're eating is actually coming from. That's right. And mm. it's it's about understanding where, where it's coming from and also having that confidence that the fishery is being managed sustainably but also safely and effectively. Yep. That's the big thing here. Yep. And, and what you were and saying is exactly right. That New South, It's a bit of volume, isn't it? And it's about the emphasis that's placed on these sorts of campaigns and maybe Victoria needs to step up a bit. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, yeah. I there guess it promote its own its own industries, but yeah. Anyway, thanks, John. No worries. We now are going to do a review of Finding Dory, and uh, this is the latest offering from Disney Pixar, which is out during the current school holidays. Initially, I thought we might do it ourselves, but then I thought, no, maybe we should uh, look at the target audience. So these is this is the the group of people who are designed to uh, to go and watch this. And so I, I said at the start of the show, I'll say it again. I confess up front to being related to all three of of our presenters. So uh, welcome to you. Um, Jemima. Hello. <laughs> hi, hi, Maddie. Hello. And hi, Amy. Hello. Good to good to have you guys all in. So Jemima's my daughter, Madeline, Amy, my nieces. But hey, what's 
was a bit of nepotism between friends. <laughs> All right, and we decided spontaneous to, uh, spontaneously to do this too. All right, let's kick off. Finding Dory. Talk us through the story. Who wants to kick off? I'll do it. Okay. Um, so Finding Dory is basically about um, Dory finds th- uh, finally remembers her parents after so many years and goes on a quest to find them. And once she gets to the place where she thinks she remembers they are, they're not there. Now, Dory, of course, is a character in Finding Nemo, which came yes. out quite a long time ago. It was at least 10 years ago, wasn't it? It's was like my birth, my birth year. Yeah. Right. Okay, well, wow, yeah, so 12, 12 years ago. <laughs> yeah, Amy? Also for how... And also for how... Also for her... her her, her also, for her whole life, yeah, she tries to find her family, yeah, and what Madeline said. Okay, and so then she forgets what she's looking for. <laughs> all right, so yeah. it's a bit, it's a bit of a journey. So it's a little bit like Nemo. Yes. Mm-hmm. Okay. Was it? Is it? Did you find that the plot was similar to Nemo, or did it take on its own story? It was pretty similar, but it was a bit different. Okay. How was it different? Well, there were different characters, like. Dory's old friends from um, where she was born, which is an aquarium. Okay. And she goes back and she finds them. Right. I don't actually think that they tried to make it like Finding Nemo, like they tried Mm. to make it a whole other movie, which they don't really do in sequels, so that's very interesting. That's right, because often that's what happens with sequels, isn't it? And and particularly with with a lot of the other uh, kids-focused sequels that are out there, they, they can sometimes be a little bit like versions of the original one, but this isn't like that, you think? Yeah, like How to Train a Dragon's like easy. Like, it tells its same own story. <laughs> yeah. Amy, did you want to say something? Um, I don't know. Okay, <laughs> all right. All right, so did you see it in 3D or 2D? Because you can see it in both. 2D. 2D? Yeah, 2D. 2D. Everyone saw it in 2D? Yeah. Was that, was that good? Did you feel like you're missing out on something by not seeing it 3D? Mm, there were not that many parts that would be good in 3D. There were only, like, two. Okay. What do you think, Amy? Um, I still don't know. Okay, that's all right. So what were your favourite bits of the film? Without spoilers. Oh, that's really hard because my favourite bit's the spoiler. <laughs> okay, all right. Jemima, what was your favourite bit? Well, the same as Madeline. Okay, so the and because often what happens with um with these movies is that they put the best bits in the trailer because you would have all seen the trailer for the the movie as well. Yeah. Were the best bits in the trailer or were the best bits in the movie? So if you've seen the trailer, have you kind of seen the movie or are they good stuff? Good I think bits they're just pages? trying to pinpoint like what exactly happens in the movie. They're not really trying to put the best bits into the movie. That's good because that's that's the whole point of a trailer. But I don't know. Yeah, they didn't really put the best bits in it. That's a good thing. Were there any parts that you didn't like? Nope. <laughs> no? Jemima? I like the whole thing. Yep. Amy? Definitely. I like the whole thing as well. Excellent. Anything about it that you'd change? Would you change the ending or was the ending pretty good? Um, the ending was pretty good. good. The ending was my favourite bit. Yeah? I think because I wasn't really involved in the actual making of it, I can't really think of it being any other way. Okay, excellent. And the big question, is it as good as Finding Nemo? No. No. Oh, really? Is it better? I'm not as good. I think it's good. I think think it's it's better. You think it's definitely better? I think it's better. Wow, that's amazing because Finding Nemo was really groundbreaking when it came up. I'm surprised because I like both of them really equal, both equally as much. Yeah. And without giving away any spoilers because we're very careful not to do that here on Radio Marinara, uh, is there room for Finding Nemo 3? Because this is really Finding Nemo 2. Nope. No? <laughs> I, don't I don't think, think so. they should make another What one. about some of the new characters? Are there new characters in this one that you didn't see in Nemo? Yeah, yeah Amy? there were. Um, Destiny, Bailey. Uh, Who's Destiny? What kind of animal is Destiny? Uh, she's a whale. Yeah. And Bailey's a whale as well. And there's a pretty cool octopus, isn't there? Yes, in this one? Hank. Hank? Hank. 
He's funny. Could you could you do Finding Hank as the third one? Maybe. And make it a trilogy? Because, like, they say that he has a bit of a backstory with the ocean, but we don't really... Uh, it didn't really tell me what that was. Annoying. It can be annoying. Right. And he's very arrogant. Oh, my goodness. Mm. <laughs> so, so, is this, so maybe Finding Hank, this might be the third one? That would be a very we'll interesting see. movie to see. I'd love Extremely. to see that. I think there should be a Finding Marlin. Ah. I suppose that's the only one that I haven't really made a movie about. Yeah, and it would be very interesting because he's very careful and he usually doesn't get lost. Marlin. Yeah, because yeah, Marlin's Nemo's dad. Yeah, he's very he? careful. Yeah. Okay, and one last question. Out of five sea stars, what would you give it? Mm. Four and a half. Four and a half? <laughs> Four and three quarters. Four and three quarters. Mm. Amy? Four and three quarters. Four and three quarters. Big scores. Thank you, girls. You're welcome. It's been wondering, wonderful wondering, wonderful <laughs> having you in. And uh, in, a, in a few weeks' time, we've got um, uh, the Triple R Radiothon coming up. And would you like to come back in and read out some names for us? Yes. People who subscribe? Yes. That would be fantastic. You can help me decorate some cupcakes too. Yes. Yay. <laughs> Thanks, girls. We'll catch you soon. And you are listening to Radio Marinara on 3RRR. Now, it's a sad fact that oil spills and leaks are a reality of when things go wrong with boats and ships and oil extraction. Sometimes oil leaks out of the pipes that are supposed to safely and reliably contain it. When this happens, the oil floats and anything in its path will either eat it, be suffocated by it or covered in it. For seabirds and particularly little penguins, this inevitably spells disaster and all too often leads to death. Fortunately for little penguins at Phillip Island, there is a team of rangers ready to receive and rehabilitate. Jodie Bellet is one of them. She joins us now to talk about the wonderful work her team does in looking after our littlest penguins and other sea life that bear the brunt of maritime human activity. Good morning, Jodie. Hi, how are you? Good, thanks. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Hey, welcome to Triple R. So I think it's the first time we've had you on? Yes. Fantastic. Now, uh, I mentioned your role as a wildlife rehabilitation ranger. I thought we might start with that. Talk us through that. What does that involve? Sure. We look after um, any injured or sick wildlife from Phillip Island and also seabirds from, well, just about anywhere. And uh, how how often would you receive um, these animals? Do they sort of come through every day? Oh, look, it depends on the time of the year. Um, spring and summer are particularly busy times. Autumn actually isn't very quiet either, but <laughs> winters normally are quiet at times. So, um, you know, we might get up to 10 or more calls in the peak season and we might get no calls um, in winter which is kind of a nice breathing space. What's, what's the reason for that, Jodie? Is there just less boating traffic as a result of the weather? Is that something, is it related to that? Oh, look, it's all to do with um, breeding seasons and, and where animals are at a particular time. So we have the penguin breeding season over summer here, so that's normally a pretty hectic time for us. And then, again, they molt in autumn. And then you've got all the um, other birds and animals that breed around spring. So that makes that pretty hectic time. And whereas winter, they all sort of tend to go off and do their own thing. Penguins will go out to sea for extended periods of time and only come on to land every few weeks. So. Okay, so it's more as a result of the animal activity rather than than what's happening with, with boats and ships and so on. Um, yeah. Back to what you do, do you need to have particular qualifications or experience to re- be a rehabilitation ranger? How did, how did you get into the field? Yeah, look, everybody sort of comes into it a bit of a different way. It's it's a fairly strange niche um, little job. But I I did um, conservation land management and also did some extra study in rehab and husbandry of wildlife. And then I volunteered for quite a while. 
And was it something that you had in mind as you were going through and doing your conservation land management? Or was, did you kind of think, yeah, at the end of this, I, I want to go and do wildlife rehabilitation on Phillip Island? Or ha- how did you sort of then end up in, that, in where you are? Yeah, well, I was already volunteering here, so um, that sort of all all ended up falling into place and I was just incredibly lucky that um, when I was all uh, studied up and ready to go, a position became vacant and that doesn't happen very often in this field, so yeah. <laughs> I was very lucky. What kind of, um, we mentioned the penguins, what, what sort of other animals do you get coming through the centre? Oh, we get a, a range of um, seabirds. We get albatross and giant petrels and we get a couple of larger um, types of penguins too. We've had rockhoppers and fjordlands in recent years. Um, and we also get all sorts of other animals, wallabies and possums and other types of woodland birds and echidnas and pretty much most most wildlife you can think of. Any, around yeah, anything that's out yeah, we, there. We take, yeah, we take all of it, so... And uh, you mentioned rockhoppers. What are rockhoppers? Oh, so rockhopper penguins, they're, um, they're a species from um, New Zealand. And, um, yeah, they... they um, oh, is that New Zealand? Yeah, I'm thinking of the Fjordlands. Yeah, I think the rockhoppers are in New Zealand as well. Um, but, yeah, they're, they're just a, a larger species of penguin, the same as the Fjordland crested penguins. And so they... Yeah. And we get them on Phillip Island, do we? No, no. no we, um, they're just a, a vagrant species, so they turn up every now and again. Oh, um, right. Usually, um, if, if something's happened, we're in their foraging grounds, um, and depending on the time of year, uh, they may be in our waters and, and turn up. We've had some turn up ready to molt, and so they've had their molt here, and we've had others that have been injured or malnourished or, yeah random things and yeah I was going to ask about the injuries that you come across and this might be a bit hard for some people to hear but what what sort of what do you have a a fairly frequent flyer list of injuries that you see so we mentioned the oil and um, most of our listeners are well familiar with that and I'm guessing um, plastic entanglement might be one as well yeah it is um you know fishing nets and and that kind of thing that that does happen unfortunately um malnourishment seems to be the major cause of of critters that come in um not just penguins all of them uh but we get propeller wounds for for seabirds as well and um yeah that kind of thing so it's it's a range of of issues we get some dislocations and some strange Ooh. little ones as well and mm. do you, and do you have vets on site who help with some of those more major injuries or is that something that you guys all just look after yourselves yeah, no, a lot of the stuff we can deal with here ourselves, but we've got a great local vet who we've been working with for over 20 years and um, we've got a great relationship with them. They're, they're very good with the animals, so um, that that tends to be where we take them, down in New Haven. Mm. I had a look at your website and the Rehabilitation Centre is pretty special. Um, wondering if you can just take us through the setup for that. It, it looks uh, looks pretty spectacular. Yeah, we're really lucky actually. Um, back in 2011, I think it was, we, we opened the new centre. The old one was quite small and just a little shed. So this one is made predominantly to cater for, um, in case of a large oil spill. So we can cater for about 500 penguins in the existing centre and um, can expand to about 1,000 or 1,500 um after that so we've got um, an in-ground pool for our larger seabirds we've got an above-ground pool for the penguins 
Um, we've got a whole lot of outdoor sand pens where we've got um, penguin boxes, which are like little makeshift burrows for them. And um, they've been made by a whole lot of volunteers that we get here, which is great. And, uh, yeah, and then we've got a little woodland pen outside as well. And then we've got intensive care rooms inside where we can house the sicker animals. I was uh, wanting to go back to um, 2001 because uh, we we were on air at that time. We'd been going for a few years, I think maybe five years at that point, and there was a very big oil spill that I'm guessing maybe some of our newer or younger listeners won't remember, but a huge oil spill. And uh, I understand 450 little penguins all needed rehabilitation at once. How did you cope with that? Yeah, it, it was a huge effort and the staff that were, were current at that time did an amazing job. There were penguins everywhere so um, they got a whole load of staff in to, to give everyone a hand and volunteers came to help out as well so it was all hands on deck and um, everybody were either washing penguins, drying penguins, feeding them or um, swim testing and, and then yeah the lucky bit of the release which is always the best bit. Yes definitely. I want to ask about the vests and their role as well um, because that was at the point that, that we came in and, and started to uh, to cover the, the issue with the little hand-knitted vests. Um, did you have enough vests at the time? Oh good question. I'm not sure because I wasn't here but I do believe that they, they did alright with the penguin jumpers they had on hand. Um, they would have had to wash and reuse some of them but um, but we've had people knitting penguin jumpers for, for years. It's been a great community effort. And uh, and then it got to the point, uh, I was speaking with uh, Lauren Jones from the Pen- Penguin Foundation during the week where things all of a sudden went viral as far as the vest story went. And uh, <laughs> <laughs> and now and I thought this might be a good opportunity to put out there that uh, you guys don't need any more vests, do you? <laughs> any more penguin no. jumpers? You're completely <laughs> stocked up. Yeah, no, um, it's been wonderful and, and we've we've got enough penguin jumpers, I think, for the next 20 years, so um, perhaps even longer. So it's it's been wonderful. We've, we've got peng- penguin jumpers from all around the world and um, uh, people have put in a huge effort, which is great. But, yeah, that story did go viral and we ended up with more penguin jumpers than we could store. So, <laughs> um, yeah, thank, thanks to everyone, big thanks to everyone, but we don't need any more. You're absolutely right. And uh, yeah, more, uh, just you know, love everyone. Just wanted to do something to to help the penguins. How many uh, little penguins would you get each year needing treatment for oil damage, Jody? Oh, it averages at about 130, 140 penguins for for just general stuff. Yep. Um, and most years we'll we'll end up with you know the odd oiled penguin as well whether it's from um, not always from shipping oil sometimes it's from cooking oil um, so yeah some strange things happen but um, or, or other you know substances that we're not quite sure what they are but yeah that keeps it keeps our hand in for washing the penguins as well and uh, have you got any animals in rehab at the moment what's your plan for them Oh, at the moment, we've, we're nice and quiet. We've um, just recently released um, quite a few penguins, which is great. And so we've just got one molting penguin in at the moment and a swamp parrot that's got a sore wing. So we've just got to um, give the swamp parrot some time and let him uh, see if he, his uh, wound comes good. Hopefully it does. He's getting some pain relief and medication. And then the penguin is just pretty much being left alone to molt at the moment. 
do, do what it does best. Yeah. Uh, how can our, if people are listening and they want to uh, help and contribute in any way, and we've got that message out there, um, vests, thank you very much, but completely stopped <laughs> and no more, thank you very much. <laughs> uh, how can people help? I guess you're always happy and ready to take donations. Yeah, donations to the Penguin Foundation are brilliant. Um, the Wildlife Rehab Centre is partially funded by the Penguin Foundation as well as the Phillip Island Nature Parks, so um, that that is a great help. Um, generally, generally financial donations are, um, are preferable as uh, then we can you know, disperse it as we need it. That's great. And it's such a great combined effort too between the Phillip Island Nature Park and the Penguin Foundation. Separate entities, but both working really well together to help you do what you need to do. And one last plug for uh, people who just want to get some more information. What, what's the best place that they can go? Have you got a website? Yeah, we've got a website. It's penguins.org.au. And, um, and that will, it's pretty expensive so you can get on there and have a look at all the different things that the Phillip Island Nature Parks does. Yeah, it's a really good website and you can go and check out the uh, the rehab centre. That's where I uh, saw the images that I saw there as well. Hey, thanks Jodie. It's been great speaking with you and um, thank you so much for everything that you do and to all your team as well and good luck and uh, we hope to catch up with you down the track. Yeah, no worries. Thanks, Bron. Okay. Bye. Okay, Bye for now. Bye. That was Jodie Bellett. She's a wildlife rehabilitation ranger down at Phillip Island looking after penguins and our seabirds and all other native wildlife that get caught up in all kinds of uh, difficult situations. Rex. Rex, yes. <laughs> That's you. That's me. That would be me. Uh, yeah, we're just going to talk about 220-year-old um, beer. Uh, and how, they, how it got there in the first place. So it was a festival called the Sydney Cove and um, a company called uh, Campbell and Clark up in Sydney in early, well, actually the uh, 17, late 1700s were um, involved with importing things into Australia because there wasn't much coming in. So they had bought a ship in Calcutta and they were sailing it down to uh, sailing it to uh, Sydney. And the old way to get this to Sydney was right around the bottom of Tassie because they... Bass Strait hadn't been discovered yet. Right. Huh. <laughs> this was all part... They went a bit out of their way. <laughs> so this is all part of the story, and they got, got into trouble and the rough seas and all that, and the vessel started leaking and uh, manning the pumps for uh, 24-7 until they eventually got around the bottom of Tassie, headed up the uh, east coast and then off Preservation Island, ran ashore off Preservation Island. Where's Preservation Island in sort relation of, to King Island? Uh, well, no, it's sort of northeast tip of... Tasmania. Oh, okay. Up. So, so, yeah. so maybe um, like Bishno, St Mary's. I know way above that, right up the top. Oh, right, okay. Right between, well, the start of that Between Street. there, right, gotcha. Yeah, sort of between Flinders Island and um, tip of the, the northwestern, northeastern tip. Okay, so it's, it's run aground there, and how long did it, how long did it lie there for? Uh, well, it, this was happened in 18, 1797. Oh, right, wow. So it was quite okay. early for... Um, for, for development of Australia. Uh, and then it uh, organised a lifeboat because they were out in the middle of nowhere. Sent a lot, uh, one of the ship's boats to... Uh, they're going to sail up to Sydney with 17 people. Unfortunately, they ran aground off the... Um, on the 90-mile beach. 17 people headed up the coast and eventually three made it to Sydney alive. Hmm. Uh, to, wow. That's, to, a, that's a long journey. It's a long walk, yeah. Wow. So let's let's get to this bottle of beer. <laughs> so we we mentioned this at the start of the program. Right. Where does the bottle of beer come into the well, story? This is the cargo of, on board the uh, Sydney Cove. They had beer and goods and because beer is you know 
worth its weight in gold virtually. So, that, so they imported beer in, eight, in 1797 all the way from England to Australia. Oh, yeah, yeah, they're still doing it. Oh, yeah, but, but to think back then, I mean, you know, it's a long and, 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 and dangerous journey, clearly, but yeah. beer was worth enough to bring it all the way. And more so than rum. Yeah. Cause wow. I, oh, rum as well, yeah. 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 Wow. Well, anyway, that's just, just, just interesting. Premium, very premium in, beer. In terms of its alcoholic bang for buck, isn't that the main reason why they took rum? Because they could take more volume of it and, and it would well, <laughs> go further. It was a trading commodity as well. It's worth, worth money and a place yeah. of money. And, uh, yeah, it was yeah. like beer. Navvies and that would live on beer because that's where they get their sustenance and protein from. So let's track forward because we've got three <laughs> minutes left. What, what happened to the bottle of beer in question? Well, the, the vessel... It went so, down. Uh, they salvaged parts of the gear. Uh, the vessel was abandoned... Abandoned, if left to itself. Uh, Matthew Flinders charted where it was. Um, right. He's an amazing uh, cartographer. Uh, charted where it was. And then, um, lo and behold, 1977, some divers went out using Flinders' chart and found it. Uh, fast forward, there was a number of expeditions and salvage, oh, ex-archaeology, maritime archaeology. In 1990, they did a major ex- excavation, probably the last major excavation, raised a whole stack of beer and <coughs> old beer bottles and got them. So for 25 years, is that when they found this bottle of beer in 1990? Yeah, 19... So where has it been for the last 25 years? Queen Victoria Mu- Museum in Launceston. Right. So it's been, they've been in storage there. They decanted them into, um, into other bottles, storage yep. containers, sterile. And um, they had two of them. Uh, from one bottle, and they had another bottle which they thought there was a good chance of salvaging some yeast because somebody said, beer, yeast, whoa, <laughs> you know. Mm. <laughs> Combine the two, you can make 220-year-old beer. Yeah. So they extracted some, um, were, were uh, failed with the first attempt from the sealed bottle, and then from the stored bottles they managed to extract some yeast, which were able to culture through, uh, it, was, it was a big project. It was, you know, they used lots of resources. And uh, extracted the, that uh, and then got out with the home brew kit and started brewing beer. And <laughs> four weeks later, they had 220-year-old beer, first successful... So it's technically 220-year-old beer because the yeast that they're using has been alive this entire time yeah. in these bottles. And it, it matches very much this uh, beer made from um, Travis Monks in uh, Belgium. Very This culture. The culture of the yeast... Apparently they used to use like 20 different yeast cultures when they were brewing beer. It was a different process. They'd use open vats to brew the beer. And so they got this examined under the microscope and the, the, um, the scientists nearly fell off because they matched these old, very old strains of yeast. Wow, so they're still using them basically in, in, in some in places like Belgium. Yeah. And yet, wow, that's so, so cool. So is there, is there a whole line of beer that's now going to be produced? <laughs> Probably will be. I reckon there's been going to be a lot of our listeners who would be very, very quick to jump <laughs> in line for a bottle of 220-year-old. Yeah, so it's sort of unique beer that tastes pretty good, apparently, yeah. too. That's brilliant. We've got to get our hands on a bottle and got, of If anyone beer. can think of a name for their beer, let us know on our Facebook page because I kind of think of a few now. Right, great. Fantastic. Awesome. Hey, that's awesome, Rex. Thank you. No problem, what a great story. Hey, it's right on 10 o'clock and we need to thank our guests today. Uh, thank you very much um, to Jody Bellet from from um, Penguin uh, Phillip Island Nature Park from the Wildlife Rehabilitation Centre down there. Um, thank you, John. 
Thank you. Thank you, Rex. Thanks, Brian. And uh, thank you, Kent. He's been panelling for us today and uh, managing all the chaos. <laughs> and uh, thank you very much to our Finding Dory reviewers, uh, Madeline, Amy and Jemima as well. Next week, Dr Beach will be in the house. I have no idea what we're going to cover. Won't be uh, anything like 200-year-old beer, <laughs> but we'll, we'll, we'll certainly find something interesting to talk about. 200-year-old surfaces. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Stay tuned for Radiotherapy. They'll take you through to 11 o'clock, and uh, we will catch you next week. Have a great Sunday. Bye for now. Radio Marinara is brought to you by Deakin University's School of Life and Environmental Sciences. Triple R Sponsors. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.